Acts chapter 2. Well, in our very first study of the book of Acts, and that would have been two weeks ago if, if you guys were here, um, I, I entitled the message, Waiting for the Promise. And the promise, if you remember, that Jesus told the disciples to wait for was the coming of the Holy Spirit. All right, and we looked at those passages uh, in Acts 1, 1 to 8, where Jesus told them, right before he ascended into heaven, he told the disciples, he said, listen, I've got two instructions for you. First off, I want you to stay in Jerusalem. And the reason I want you to stay in Jerusalem is because of the second one, which is I want you to wait for the promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit that's going to come. And you don't want to miss this. You want to be there. You want to experience what God is about to do. Um, and he told them something is am- amazing is about to happen. Now, when I say the word amazing now in our day and age, it's not so amazing anymore, right? The word amazing has kind of lost its oomph, so to speak, right? That's the way a lot of our superlative words have, right? Things that are awesome or incredible. They're really not. We talk about awesome ice cream or incredible whatever TV show. But when I say amazing, that something amazing was about to happen, what Jesus was describing is something that was truly amazing, something that was extraordinary, okay? Jesus wanted them to know that when the Holy Spirit arrived, that it was going to alter the world forever. That kind of amazing, okay, deeply impacting, world-changing. And I don't want us to miss the significance of what happens here in Acts chapter 2. Because here's what I know. I'm looking out at this crowd, and I know a lot of you, and I know many of you already know this story in Acts chapter 2. Okay, and sometimes when we come across a passage of Scripture like this that we know pretty well, sometimes what happens is we kind of just gloss over it. We're like, oh, I've already got that. I know that part, that part of the story. I've heard this before. But I think it really takes fresh eyes for us to really take it all in. So even if you know the story, I want to challenge you to think deeply today about what was taking place. Okay? Can you do that for me here today? All right. Let's start just with verse 1. Here's what it says. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. We're going to stop right there. Okay. In order for you to understand the Bible really well, there's a few things about Jewish history and Jewish culture uh, that you really need to understand. All right? And so for, for the people that Luke was writing this to, that was totally normal. It was like trying to explain carne asada to a San Diegan. Like, we know carne asada. All right? But if you go to... Massachusetts, and you're talking about carne asada, they're like, carne what? (laughs) They don't understand this, right? It's part of our culture. It's part of what we know. It's part of what we love. It's part of what has made this human being this human being. I've digested a lot of carne asada in my time, right? But for when you read this, the day of Pentecost, Pentecost, what in the world is Pentecost? Okay, there were three great festivals of the Jews, of the nation of Israel, three of them. God established these three feasts, and there were other ones. If you, if you want to study this on your own, you can go this week and read Leviticus chapter 23. Okay, Leviticus chapter 23 talks about a whole bunch of these different uh, feasts that, was esta- that were established. But three of those feasts were kind of known as like the pilgrimage feasts, meaning people that lived outside of the holy city of Jerusalem, no matter where they lived in the region, if they were close enough, they would try, at least at one time in their lives, to make a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem for one of these three feasts. Okay? It was kind of a big, it was a big deal in the life of Jews, especially as they continued to scatter. All right? Now, the, the three great festivals, um, the first one that happened in the spring was called the Feast of First Fruits. All right, the, the Jewish name for that is Pesach. All right, that is when they were commemorating the first Passover and the events of the Exodus. Okay, it, it, let me explain a little bit. The Exodus was, means coming out of. That's when Moses led the Israelites out of captivity of Egypt. 
All right, they had been in captivity in Egypt for over 400 years. God calls Moses to come and take the people of Israel and lead them out of Egypt. All right, and in that, that if those events that took place, even if you don't know those, that story well, I'll just give you a, a quick thing. One of the things that happened was ultimately God had to do these, these incredible things. He brought these plagues upon Egypt to cause the leadership of Egypt, the Pharaoh there, to finally say, okay, fine, you can go. But the last of those plagues, the heaviest of those plagues, was that the angel of death came from God and wiped out the firstborn throughout the land of Egypt. And the only ones who were not killed in that whole process were those that had put the blood of the sacrifice on the doorposts of their homes, and the angel of death passed over those homes. That's why that particular holiday was called Passover, because the angel of death passed over. All right? And so the first of these great festivals that happened in the spring, the Feast of First Fruits, was remembering that time. The, the Feast of Passover um, was, was part of that whole thing. And there's all this symbolism in it, and, and people really um, love the time of the Passover. All right? The second of those feasts in the summer was called the Feast of Weeks. And I will tell you this, this is part of why it's confusing in the Bible. There's a lot of names for each one of these feasts that... They have different names for the same feast, all right? But I'm just trying to simplify it for you here. Um, the, the Jewish name for that is Shavuot. And originally, it was a harvest festival. Um, and then, and the way that they still celebrate it now, is they commemorated the giving of the law of Moses when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And so that's what they, they celebrate during this feast, okay? And the reason they call it the Feast of Weeks is because it was a week of weeks, meaning it was seven periods of seven days, all right? A week is seven days, and so it's a week of seven days. So seven weeks, seven times seven, 49 days. And on the day after those 49 days were completed, the 50th day, that was called Pentecost. That's what Pentecost means, 50th, okay? So that's where that name comes from. So at the end of those seven weeks, then you would have the festival of Pentecost, all right? which was 50 days after Passover from the festival, festival from before, okay? Then the third of the great feasts was in the fall, and it was called the Feast of Booths, or the Jewish term Sukkot. Um, and that commemorated the 40 years in the wilderness. After Moses brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness there. Uh, before they moved into the promised land. And so the Feast of Booths, the reason they call them booths is because they're, they're like little tents. And so to celebrate that, what the Jews would do, they didn't do it very many times in history, but um, they, it has kind of gotten a bit of a, a resurgence in, in recent decades. They would build these little tents outside of their house, and they'd spend a few nights camping out, being reminded of the fact that their ancestors had to, for 40 years, set up and tear down tents. And live in tents. They had no permanent dwelling because they were wandering through the wilderness. All right? So that's the three big ones. And you'll see that at different times through Scripture where they're talking about these feasts and, and when they line up. All right? There's also some other Jewish holidays now that people um, keep track of. In fact, right now today, we are in the middle of Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. All right? It, it ends at sundown tonight. Um, but that's one you might have heard of, Rosh Hashanah, Hanukkah. We know that one. That's actually a, a feast, uh, uh, the Feast of Lights, they sometimes call it, talking about the dedication of the temple, all right? So this is, this is after, after that. And then um, Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. So these are different things that fit into um, these three great festivals, and there's some other ones too, but those are the three big ones. So here's my point. We come back here, and you read this. When the day of Pentecost arrived... What you now understand about Pentecost was Pentecost was this celebration day where people would be coming into Jerusalem from all over the place to celebrate one of these three big feasts, all right? 50 days after the Passover. And they're spending time together because they were obeying what Jesus had told them, wait in Jerusalem, but also it was a major holiday, and Jerusalem was full of visitors. So they're hanging out together in this one place. And here's what it says in verse 2. It says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. 
and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, if this was the first time, or if this is your first time of ever hearing this story, these verses would cause you to want to reread them. She's like, hold on, what just happened? They're sitting here in a room, and all of a sudden, a sound, a wind comes through. This mighty rushing wind fills this room. You're like, okay, what's happening? There's a hurricane that's blown through. Um, how, how is this? What's happening here? And then it starts describing what they're seeing. These flames, like flame, like fire. This fire is coming down, and it's resting on people. What, what is exactly going on here? All right? Now, I, I, I know that um, I, I want you to understand that, yes, what's being described is a supernatural event. All right? This isn't completely um, normal, a, a normal occurrence. And even when Luke here, the author of this book, when uh, Luke himself wasn't there when this took place, and so this would have come from interviews that he would, as he had been interviewing these 120 or so people, trying to figure out, hey, what was that like? And they're like, well... It was really strange. We were in this room. We were inside. And all of a sudden, it just got loud. And there's this wind sweeping through. And we feel the pressure of this. And then all of a sudden, we see these lights. It was like flame. But they were like coming, just appearing. And they were like resting on people. They're trying to describe this event. But it's a supernatural event. It's something that's really difficult to understand. In some ways, these verses resonate with me even more than something as incredible as, say, uh, the creation story when you read in Genesis. And there's some pretty impressive things there in Genesis. You read through that and talk about the, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters and the separation from, from light to dark and, and, and bringing forth all these plants and all that stuff. It's pretty supernatural, incredible creation-type stuff. But this is a little different to me simply because this is human beings experiencing the Almighty God. This is on the level of like Moses at the burning bush and God speaking to him. This is like Elijah on Mount Sinai when he wanted to see God and, and, and God sent an earthquake and he sent a, a, a windstorm and all this and God wasn't in that but then he comes in the still small voice and Elijah realizes, wow, I'm in the presence of God. This is like when Peter, James, and John go on the Mount of Transfiguration and they see Jesus in his glorified state and being stunned and hearing the voice of God. That's the sort of thing that's happening here. This is an incredible occurrence of God touching humanity. And I want you to imagine that a little bit. What would that be like if you were there? Think of how, of how it would just immerse your senses. You're just hanging out for a holiday with some friends. You're inside, you're in a room, you're just there, and all of a sudden you start feeling this wind pressure, and you hear this sound. First, it'd be frightening, right? You'd be like, oh, what's going on? The house is about to fall over. What, what's happening here? And then the sight of these, these flames appearing and resting on everyone, the, the, the smells and the, the feelings that you would be sensing, no one no one would ever experience something like this and not be permanently changed, right? This would be one of those things that would happen in your life that you'd be like, wow, remember when. That's why the supernatural occurrence is, is happening. And the experience would have left no question in these believers' minds, the promise has arrived. This is it. This is what Jesus told us to wait for. That's what's happening right now. They had been there. They had heard him speak as they watched him ascend into heaven when he said, wait for the promise. And when this event starts taking place, it may have been scary at first, but then it would all clicked. Oh, this is what Jesus meant. This is what he's talking about. He told us to wait. This is what we we're waiting for. The promise had arrived. Now, let's go on. Here's what it says in verse 4. It says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, 
the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They're filled with new wine. All right. Now, although the wind and fire would have really astounded them, the most outrageous part of this whole event was actually when the Holy Spirit filled them to overflow. I mean, it would have already been amazing that you're here, you hear the sound, you see the wind, you see these things happening. That's pretty incredible. But then all of a sudden, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. The internal impact, I believe, was the part that would have marked them the most. Because from the depths of their being, they started to praise and glorify God. And it tells us here that the Spirit supernaturally enabled them to speak languages that they had never spoken before. That's what's happening. Now, let's pause there for a second. Because I know for most modern Americans, the idea of supernatural things is uncomfortable. Except in our entertainment. (laughs) We have no problem watching some guy, you know, freeze things with his hands and shoot laser beams out of their eyeballs and fly to space and here and there and lift giant rocks and turn green when they get angry. That's all good. We're, we're cool with that. But if you're talking about something that's actually real and supernatural, eh, that doesn't feel as comfortable for us. Generally speaking, we prefer the natural world around us to be in control, right? We just do, especially in our control if possible. We like the world to be ordered, and we like to know what to expect, which is exactly how God designed the natural world. The natural world has many features about it that are very consistent and repeatable, right? If I pick up my Bible and drop it on the floor, which I won't, I and you would believe that if I let it go, it will fall to the floor, (laughs) because we know that's how gravity works. We expect those things to happen. We We build our lives around the fact that each morning the sun will rise. Sometimes it might be cloudy, but it's going to rise and it's going to set again at the end of the day. And in 364, five and a half days, quarter of a day, whatever, we're going to rotate around the sun. And if you're a flat earther, we'll discuss, discuss all these other things later. But you know what I'm saying? There's a lot of things in the world that are consistent and repeatable and happen over in a very consistent, straight ahead way. All right? So, what I'm telling you is, don't feel bad if you read a passage of Scripture like this and it makes you feel a little uncomfortable, okay? Or if it even causes you to want to ignore it or refuse it. Instead, what I'm saying to you is, let's study it together and let's consider the implications of the supernatural, okay? Now, as we've seen over the past two weeks, these followers that were there on the day of Pentecost in this room... They have been processing the supernatural works of God that they have witnessed. Okay? They have seen and interacted with the risen Jesus. They saw him crucified. They saw him buried. They have also seen him alive, still bearing the scars from his death. All right? And over that period of 40 days, and now this last stretch of 10 days they've had 50 days since the Passover meal where Jesus was with them on the Passover here to Pentecost they've had all these days to be thinking about these things to be processing these things to remind themselves okay that wasn't just a weird dream 
Jesus was really alive. I've seen him since. And yes, we really saw him crucified. We even saw the scars on his body. We know it happened. This is crazy, but this is what happened. Just a few days before, they watched him with their own eyes, as we looked at last week, as he ascended into heaven. And two angels appear and say, yeah, the same Jesus, the way he went is the way he's returning, right? So they've been experiencing these different supernatural things over and over and over. Not to mention the things that they saw Jesus do supernaturally when he was with them. Healing the sick, casting out demons, uh, all those events. So for them over this time period, their, their supernatural threshold, so to speak, keeps getting lowered and lowered and lowered until they're like, okay, yeah. This is a supernatural occurrence, but sometimes this is what God does. All right, that's what they experienced. God had prepared them for these sorts of supernatural occurrences. And they'd come to understand and embrace the fact that God is beyond their understanding and that he was doing things beyond their comprehension and out of their control. Now, here's then when we bring it back to us. If we haven't experienced something that we would categorize as supernatural, there are going to be many parts of the Bible that, we're, that we read, and it's going to be hard for us to accept. We're going to read some of these things like, well, did that really happen? Or is it just kind of like a story that they're trying to tell to explain a, you know, a, a deep spiritual truth? But did, did this kind of stuff really actually happen? And what I want to tell you is that's okay. That's okay if that's how you originally are approaching these things. Because I, I think that God is gracious and patient in teaching us. This is what he did with the disciples. Uh, you might remember the disciple Thomas. When the, the other disciples, the, the ten remaining disciples, saw Jesus after he had died and rose again, they saw the resurrected Jesus, Thomas wasn't there. I don't know, he was out running an errand, doing whatever. And when Thomas came back into the room, all the guys were like, Thomas, you're not going to believe this. Jesus rose from the dead. He's alive. We just saw him. And he's, what does he say? He's a disciple of Jesus. What does Thomas say? He's like, you guys are all full of it. Like, unless I see him with my own eyes and I put my hand into his scars, like, there's no way. You're all nuts. Okay, so don't pretend that these disciples were different than us. These disciples were, were taught by the Lord slowly and graciously to understand and embrace some of the supernatural things that took place. Now, when Jesus appeared to Thomas, he falls down at the Lord and says, okay, my Lord, my God. And he's like, Thomas, <laughs> you know, some people are going to have to believe without seeing me. <laughs> but I'm glad that you're back on the team. Good. Stay with us, right? But here's my, my um, encouragement to you with this. If, if the supernatural parts of the Bible are difficult for you to handle, I understand it. All right? And here's the other thing that's even more important than that. God understands it. He understands that this is not how we see the world most of the time. And so it's all right for you to consider these things. My encouragement is to let you just remain open to the possibilities of what God might do. Okay? If this world was created by a God, then certainly that God has the ability to do things that are bigger than we can understand. So even if you're a non-believer here today, I would encourage you to stick with it and see if it might be worth believing. Now, if you're a Christian here already today, if you're a Christian, you already believe in the supernatural. Okay? You do. You believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That's the foundation of our faith. That's what we believe in. I always find it interesting that sometimes Christians can believe that, they're willing to believe that, that a dead man rose from the grave and became alive. You believe that, but you don't want to believe any other supernatural things that happen in the Bible, okay? It's a bit of a disconnect in my mind. But I still understand it. That is the way it is a lot. People are like, okay, well, if I'm going to believe one thing, I'm going to believe that. Good. If you're going to believe one supernatural occurrence, believe that Jesus rose again. Um, the rest of our faith is, is built on that. But I need you to know, the book of Acts is loaded with supernatural events. You're going to be confronted over and over again with some of these supernatural things taking place. And it's not a book of fairy tales. It's an historical account. But still, I understand that it can be hard to believe. Um, and we need to remember that also when we share our faith with others. Let the Lord draw people in, in his time and in his way. So what was actually taking place 
when these followers of Jesus began to speak in other tongues. Okay? Now, for those of you familiar with the Bible, you might be aware of the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues that's described in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. All right? That gift, there in the church in Corinth that Paul is addressing and talking about, is, is different than what we see here. All right? Specifically, the way it's described there in, in Corinthians is that, that the, the, this supernatural gift of speaking in tongues is an unknown language. All right? Paul specifically says, look, if you're speaking in a tongue, how is anybody else going to understand what's going on? They don't. They don't know what you're saying. You're speaking this other, like, heavenly language. It's, it's, it's an unknown language. It's speaking mysteries in the Spirit, unintelligible to others. But this event is different. It seems that what took place was they're having this, this time of just prayer and worship and fellowship, being together, and then it gets really noisy. And the sound of this wind and, and then the sound of people praising God and glorifying God, it gets so loud and boisterous that it kind of spills out into the streets in Jerusalem. And everybody from around, here they're in this festival atmosphere, everybody's hanging out in the streets, but it's so loud, it gets everybody's attention. Like, what just happened? And so they all come coming toward this room where these people are, and as they come out, they start hearing these guys in all these different languages all at once, declaring the praises of God. All, all kinds of them, all right? And, it, and as they did that, it included known languages, what, what the, the people here say, um, they say, wait a minute, aren't these people Galileans? Okay, so from the 120 people that were gathered together in this upper, upper room, most, if not all of them, majority of them, were all from the area of Galilee. All right, that's where Jesus did a lot of his, his ministry, around Capernaum and, and, and the, the places around the Sea of Galilee. Most of the disciples came from that region as well. Um, if you go to Israel... In June, we will go to the region of Galilee. You'll see the Sea of Galilee. You'll see these towns, Nazareth and Capernaum and all those. Um, and so that's what the people are seeing. They're like, well, what's going on here? These people, they're Galileans. Now, I don't know if that's, they could tell by the way they dressed or looked, whatever, but they're from Galilee. All right, how is it that Galileans can be speaking all these languages? All right, um, now, people from Galilee would have probably been multilingual. They probably would have known at least three languages. Because they're Jews, they'd know some Hebrew from learning the scriptures and all that. All right? Being from Galilee, their primary language was actually Aramaic. That was the language that they communicated in most of the time in that region. And then they also would have known Greek because Greek was the language of the Roman Empire. And they were part of the Roman Empire. That was the trade language. All right? So most likely, all these Galileans would have already known three languages to some degree. But that's not what's going on here. Here, they're praising God in languages that they have never learned. Those, those, this list of all these places, those are people from parts, other parts of the Middle East, from Africa, from Europe, and from Asia. These people are hearing the mighty works of God, it says here, in their native tongues. And it caused them to ask the question, how is this possible? What is going on here? Now, I think that the ones that, that were a little skeptical of it were probably local Jerusalem Jews. They're like, ah, they're probably just drunk, you know. Uh, three times a year, everybody comes in and party a little bit too hard, and that's probably what's going on, okay? But I think that those who, it says, were amazed and perplexed, they were the ones that asked the right question. Because what they said when they saw this was, what is this? What is going on? These Christians were filled to overflow because they encountered the Spirit of God. That's what had happened. At our, at our fall retreat this year, um, our guest speaker, a guy named Dominic Bally, is going to teach us about that very thing. Um, what does it take to encounter God in worship? And, and how can we prepare ourselves and prepare our services to encounter Him each week? If you haven't signed up yet, you know this is your last week. You've got to do it. One, one week left. All right? Um, and that's what they were experiencing, this encounter of the Spirit. And, and from that, they began to overflow. Okay, let's look at verse 14. I've got to keep moving here. All right. It says this. It says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, the crowd. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. 
and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m., okay? But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And here he quotes Joel. He says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out on my spirit, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So how does Peter start out addressing the crowd? Well, first off, he quiets the whole they're drunk idea. It's like, no, that's not what's going on. And then what does he do? He immediately turns to the authority of the scriptures. Now remember, the people that are here in Jerusalem, they're all Jews. Okay, so these are all Bible-trained people. The Jewish training system from the time you were young is you learned the scriptures. All right? And so that's where Peter starts. He starts on common ground with them. Uh, these are Jews that know the scriptures. And so he begins describing this event and says this event had a purpose. This filling of the spirit that you're seeing right here was part of the plan. The prophet Joel had been given this prophecy with no clear understanding of what it all meant hundreds of years before the day of Pentecost. Hundreds of years These people knew the prophet Joel lived way back when, and these are the things that he said. But he'd been given this prophecy hundreds of years before that. God's plan of salvation was revealed by Jesus and would be carried out by his spirit-filled followers for the rest of history. Prophets were just messengers sent by God, but now... The Spirit would be poured out on men and women, on young and old, and the message of salvation was now going to go out on a large scale. That's what Peter's describing here. Okay, this would have been a pretty eye-opening message for the people that were hearing this. And verse 22, he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and he's going to quote Psalm 16 here, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and And Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. This is where the hammer dropped. (laughs) These Jews were all very aware that Jesus had done mighty works and wonders and signs. So Peter says, he says, you guys know this. 
Everybody here knows that this is what Jesus was doing. We're, we're all in agreement on that. They were also equally aware that he had been crucified. But now, Peter and the 120 are declaring that Jesus fulfilled the scriptures and that they were witnesses to the fact that he had been raised from the dead. And now, as the people are experiencing this miraculous empowerment that's, that's going on here and trying to make sense of it, Peter makes this, the heaviest statement, really, that they could imagine. He says, Jesus is the Messiah, and you crucified him. That's heavy. That's heavy. This would have sent shivers down their spine. Let's, let's read on in verse 37, because that's what we see happens. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The realization of what Peter was describing, that God's Messiah had not only come in their day, and they kind of missed that fact, but that they were complicit in allowing him to be crucified, that cut them to their heart. That freaked them out. Because they recognized that their community was responsible for putting Jesus to death. Now, for us, it's a little different. We're so individually minded. But this was a community-minded culture. They were a community-centered people. And so when they heard that, they felt responsible for Jesus' death. They realized, okay, our people, our leaders, those that are part of our community, we are the ones that Jesus came to. He came to us. We rejected him. We sent him out to be crucified. We may not have personally nailed the nails into his hands, but we sent him to Pilate to get him hooked up with some Roman soldiers that we knew could. We are responsible for this. And so they were terrified of what God was going to do and horrified that it could be true. Okay, we just offended the Almighty God. He sent us his son and we killed him. Now what? They had no idea what to do next, but they believed what Peter was saying. And so Peter here reveals the beauty of the gospel message to them. Peter could have really taken advantage of that there. He's like, all right, I got them right where I want them. They're on the, they're on the edge here. They're in tears. I can really lay it on. You guys really did bad. You know, God's got to be furious. I'm, I'm, I got to back away from you because in the same way the Holy Spirit just came on me, there could be lightning bolts that are coming down for you next, you know? And they would have believed it. They had no idea what was going on. And they're just like, ah, oh. Peter doesn't do any of that. Peter does not give a hellfire and brimstone message. Instead, what Peter says is, guys, it's okay, Repent. You've, you've done this, you recognize this, you see the guilt of your sin, repent. Let's move on from there. Because if you repent, if you change, if you believe in him as Lord and Savior, guess what? The Holy Spirit that we've received that's filling us with glory and praise to God right now is the same spirit that's for you. It's for you, it's for your children and your children's children and generation after generation. This is what's supposed to happen. This is what's supposed to take place. So get your heart right with God. Repent and be saved, be rescued. Do you realize this is the same message that Christians are supposed to be preaching today? Very same thing. Very same thing. Repent, put your trust in him, be saved, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is the amazing part of all this, I think. It says 3,000 of them received the word. But it wasn't the number of people that I think is amazing here. It's not the number. Listen carefully. It was the miraculous change of their hearts 
that would allow them to receive the word. That's the true supernatural miraculous thing that's happening here. Now, I don't, I don't mean to minimize the, the, the supernatural feat of being able to speak in a language that you've never learned. Um, or uh, the shocking ability to grow a church to 3,000 people with a single sermon. That's impressive. Uh, but the most important part, I want you to get this, the most important part of the Spirit's motion that day was that hearts were changed and souls were saved. God has blessed people with all sorts of talents and skills and gifts. And we can actually do quite a, quite a bit apart from God. I mean, he gave it all to us in the first place, right? We have breath in our lungs to sing praise only because he gives us breath in our lungs. But we can do quite a bit apart from God. When Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, I don't think he was talking about, you know, tying your shoes or brushing your teeth. Or even doing big idea things like designing an airplane or, or understanding nuclear fusion. What he was talking about when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing, is he said, you can't bear spiritual fruit. You can't do these things in the supernatural, spiritual realm without me. I, I told you a couple weeks ago, spiritual work requires spiritual power. And what Jesus says is, the spiritual work I'm calling you to, you can't do without me. You can do lots of stuff on your own. You can, you can work really hard. You can strive for things. You can devote yourself and dedicate yourself. You can get mentally tough. You can learn what you need to learn. There's a lot of things that God's already kind of naturally given you the ability to do. But you can't save people. Only God can save people. You can't change people's hearts, no matter how hard you've tried. And I know some of you have tried. You've got people in your lives, relatives, family members, friends, spouses maybe, that you love and you would love to see their heart change. And you've done everything you can think of to try to change their heart. And you can't do it. It's not just because you know the most stubborn person in the world. It's because the hearts don't, hearts don't change without God working in the heart. That is why the Holy Spirit is here to empower us to do this miraculous thing of heart transformation. That's what we have to understand. And do you see the implications of that? Without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we can do great things on the earth, but we'll never be able to fulfill the mission that God has for us. The, the reason that, that I'm a pastor isn't so that I can teach you the Bible. Or that I can help you in your relationships. Or, or that I can shape your you know, personal ideas or political views. That's not why I'm a pastor. The reason I minister, the reason anyone, uh, every Christian who ministers, is that God would work through us to change lives. That's the point. That's the purpose. That's the goal. It's not just that we're a club of people that think the same way. We're to be changed. And that's done by the Holy Spirit. All right, we're finishing here. The promised spirit had arrived, and the promise is still for us today. We need the gospel every much as they did, right? Every bit as much as they did. Uh, the people around us need transformation. We talked about this in prayer at the beginning of our service today. Our community right around here, the Seaside community, has experienced a lot of loss in the past even couple weeks. God offers hope for people who are hopeless, and we've seen that. And as a church, uh, we've described it as there are three primary things that we need to focus on. We gather in worship, we connect in community, and we reach in ministry. And as these followers of Jesus began to reach out to those people that were listening to them, it was the Holy Spirit working that made the reach effective. Because without the Spirit, they might have been able to gather a crowd. Uh, they, they might have even been able to build a community of people. But they could not have reached hearts. That work is beyond human capacity. That's how ministry works. Now, um, I'm, I'm going too, too long here today, um, but here's, what I want us to, here's how I want us to apply this. Here's how I want us to think about this a little bit. As we continue in Acts, what we're going to see is that this isn't the only time that these 120 followers are filled with the Spirit. 
In fact, what we see is that they're going to come back multiple times to the Lord and pray to be refilled with the Spirit. Okay? And it's the same way for us. You may have had a a time in your life, maybe it was almost as radical as what these guys experienced in the upper room. And the Holy Spirit um, filled you in such a way that it, it radically, supernaturally affected you. Okay? And not everybody has those sorts of experiences. And that's okay. All right? But we all, no matter what we've experienced or not, we all need to constantly refer, re, return to him to be refilled. And here's what I want to try to describe with that. When we ask God to fill us and to refill us, it's not that we're asking for more of his spirit. The spirit of God dwells in a believer. When you ask the Lord to come into your life and fill you, the Holy Spirit is within you. Okay, so you can't really get more of the Holy Spirit. So then why would you ever ask the Spirit of God to refill you with His Spirit? It's like, did I lose some of you? Like, did part of you get cut off and, and me come in? Or, that's not what it is. Um, the, I was trying to think of a way to describe this, and I don't even know if this is a very good description, but I'm going to give it to you anyway, and you can tell me later. Um, many of you know that I like to surf, okay? And I like to surf. There's a few spots that I like to go to a lot. And I'll go to the same place, same time of day, in the same ocean, But depending on the day, that ocean may be very different, all right? Some days the waves are small, some days the waves are big. Sometimes it's windy, sometimes it's glassy. There's a lot of different variables that are happening. But when I go to surf at the spot I want to surf, and if I go out there and there's no waves, it's not because I need more ocean, right? The ocean's already there. But what I need is I need to be in a place in the ocean where all of the focus and the, the, the kind of the focal point of the energy of what's happening in the ocean needs to be in the right place at the right time. It doesn't go where I tell it to go. Instead, I have to show up and get to the place where I need to be if I want to catch the best waves. It's the same thing we're talking about asking for the Spirit to fill us. We don't need more of God's Spirit What we need is we need to be sensitive to and aware of what the Lord is doing and get to the place that the Lord wants us to be. That's where we experience that fullness and overflow that happens from being in the presence of the Spirit. We we need to be at the focal point of energy. God is always at work. We come to Him to be refilled and refocused. In, In writing to a church of Christians... They're already Christians, they're believers, the Holy Spirit's within them. Here's what Paul says, Ephesians 3, 14 to 19. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees to before the Father, from whom every, heaven, every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his Spirit in your inner being. Listen, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see what he's praying there? He's, he's praying for a refilling. He's not praying that they would get saved. He's, he's praying that they would be filled with the, this fullness of God. Why would he pray that? Because we need to be regularly refilled. This event, the day of Pentecost, isn't going to be duplicated. It doesn't need to be. So I'm not telling you, hey guys, we just need to gather around and pray for another day of Pentecost. No, the day of Pentecost already happened. We don't need that to happen. But every one of us can be filled with the fullness of God. We may not speak in other languages that we've never learned, but we can be used by God to transform lives. That's what he wants to do with his people in his church. So here's your your final question. This is my final, final closing. Do you want to become the person that God's called you to become? Do you? Ask yourself that seriously. Do you want to do the good works that he's prepared beforehand for you. If you do, then ask God to fill you or to refill you with his spirit. Jesus taught us that that our Father in heaven will give the spirit to his children when we ask. Our role is to ask that he would fill us to overflow and to live from that. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you for your word here today and I pray that it, it was heard I pray, Lord, that, um, that we could be those people. That even though we weren't there to experience the, the day of Pentecost like the disciples were, that we still could experience 
the fullness of your spirit in our lives. And God, uh, I, I know in my own life that there have been times where I have gotten too empty and uh, tried to do things in my own power, in my own strength, in my own way. And I know and I recognize that that is not the abundant life that you came to bring. But instead, that we need to be filled with you. And so, Lord, in the same way that you empowered your people then, I believe that you empower us now. And so, God, I just ask that as a people, as a church, that we would be a church that experience the fullness of your Holy Spirit filling our lives, that we would be empowered to do the work that you're calling us to do, that lives would be changed not directly by us, but directly by you through us. And so, Lord, we want to be those people that, that are, are a part of the work that you're doing in changing lives. We want to see souls saved. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would fill us here today. I pray, Lord, that if there's anything that's coming to people's hearts and minds this morning that is standing in the way between you and them, maybe, maybe it's sin, Maybe it's an ongoing issue. Maybe it's something that just happened this week or this morning. Uh, Maybe it's something that we've said, something we've done, something we've thought. Lord, whatever it is, I pray that today that none of us would leave here with those things not being dealt with. I pray that today, Lord, you would give us a desire to repent, a desire to get things clear between us and you and that your spirit right now would be nudging us in our souls to be made right with you and once that work is taken care of Lord Lord that the the promise would arrive in our hearts and in our minds just as Peter said to those that were hearing him repent get things right, and then the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you. And so, Lord, today I pray that that you would begin filling people to overflow. That you would fill the deepest places of their beings with your Spirit. Do the work that only your Spirit can do, Lord. Save, heal, restore, renew, bring encouragement, bring hope bring love and peace and joy, all those things that come from being filled with you. And may we go in the power of your spirit. May we minister in the power of your spirit. May we do the the things that you're calling us to do and be the people you're calling us to be. I thank you for your word, Lord, and I thank you so much for your spirit. We worship you. We love you and we thank you.